Well, this morning <clears throat> marks that Christmas season is here. Though some of us had trees up and Christmas decorations out in November, today is officially the beginning of Advent season. For those of, I, uh, for those of you who I've yet to meet, my name's Lee Grander. I serve as a pastoral resident here at Park Community Church, and it is truly my great joy to kick us off in our Advent series here at Park and preach the Word of God. Before we keep going, you might be wondering, what is Advent? That's a great question. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or visit, which makes sense of our sermon series title. Historically, Advent is a time when Christians focus on the coming of Jesus, whose birth we celebrate in December. So here at Park, over the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, this is what we're going to do. We are going to put aside our Romans uh, preaching, and we're going to focus on Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be working through it. Uh, that genealogy is just another way to say family tree. We're going to be working through the long list of names, arriving on Christmas Eve at the greatest arrival of all time, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Another question you might be wondering is why in the world would we spend four weeks going through a genealogy? Nobody? Okay. That's a good question. I'm glad we have this thing going back and forth. Four weeks going through a list of names that is largely unfamiliar to us. Why would we do it? And again, I say to you, great question. Uh, this genealogy is important. You see, in the ancient Near East culture, during the time when the Bible was written, genealogies would have sprung off the page. They would have just been so important to the readers. For instance, Jewish genealogies. They were essential because they documented a person's proper lineage as pure Israelites. They were included in the family of God. This genealogy is specifically important. As we see back then, we've got primarily male uh, tracings uh, of the families. But in this one, we've got women. So it will be important to see what the importance of their inclusion is. And finally, uh, it'll be interesting uh, to look at this genealogy to serve the, because it served economic, tribal, political, domestic purposes, and it gave access to temple worship. You might be thinking this is exactly why we shouldn't spend time on them. Uh, this is for the people of the past. What about us? Well, it's of immense importance to us as well. You see, genealogies are through the Old Testament, and they're found here in Matthew and Luke. And they tell us a story. They tell us the story of how God has worked in the past. They remind us that God has made promises to his people. And he is showing that he's fulfilling them. Genealogies show the family of God, who's included in it, and who it's all really about. It's all in the family. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, it's about three-fourths into your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got house Bibles in the back and would love for you to grab one as our free gift to you. Matthew 1, verse 1 to 6, reads this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, 
and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abimadab, and Abimadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now in, in the name of Jesus, and we come to you knowing that your word is breathed out by you, and it is profitable for us. Father, as we look at a genealogy, as we look at a long list of names, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would illuminate our eyes to see its profit for us. God, would you meet us in this space? Would Jesus' name be glorified and known as we await in this Advent series where we celebrate the coming of our great King? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we'll be working through our text by asking three main questions. The first question is, whose genealogy is this? If you look with me at verse 1, you see everything that you, that you need to know. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus, though? It's important not to skip past this first verse in the genealogy because it is packed with meaning and importance. Within the first verse, Jesus is given three titles. When we see Jesus Christ, we're not looking at first name Jesus, last name Christ. Jesus' last name is a tale for another day. But Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Meshiach, meaning Messiah, meaning anointed one, who would be the light of hope for the people of Israel, one who would deliver them from their enemies, and as we know him now to be, the one who would deliver God's people from Satan's sin and death, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is also the son of David. Son of David points to the Messianic lineage and royal role. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you are dead and gone, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will, get this, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There was great anticipation for an everlasting kingdom to be established through the line of David. So much so that during the time between when the Old Testament and New Testament are written, there were people writing about the son of David and asking when he would come. There's a non-biblical book called the Psalm of Solomon, not to be confused with the book of Psalms or the Song of Solomon, but a non-biblical book where the author is asking the Lord for a son of David. He says, see, O Lord, and raise up their king for them, a son of David, for the proper time that you see. God, to rule over Israel, your servant, and undergird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. When the original readers would have seen Son of David associated with Jesus, they would be wondering, is this the Messiah? The title Son of David would capture the longing of the original readers for an everlasting king whose throne and kingdom would not end. You guys, when we read Son of David... 
we see the promise of the Old Testament culminating in the person, the person of Jesus. Jesus was also the son of Abraham. Son of Abraham in the final title, is the final title given to Jesus. By Matthew mentioning Abraham, he takes us all the way back to Genesis 12, where God promises Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to all the people, to all the nations of the earth. And that's exactly what would occur through the person of Jesus Christ. For our Star Wars faithful out there, I confess, I am a huge fan. And I know that there is this longing to know how everything is going to play out a couple weeks from now in the, in the trilogy's finale. There will likely be another $1.5 billion spent like there was with the last one by watchers. Because this, there's a people who long to see what the director and creator of the film will do. And as excited as we are, you guys might not be excited... For the coming of this movie, the coming of the Messiah is bar none. The longing that would have been felt by the original readers for this, this Messiah was incomparable to any longing for a movie. And we get that, right? Like the longing for a Messiah would not just be an event, one and done, over, but it would be a fulfillment to more than a 2,000-year-old promise by the creator of heaven and earth. There was a little bit of anticipation for this thing. While the movie will end and the credits will roll, this messianic promise would be everlasting. This longing for a Messiah was worthy for waiting for, which begs the question of us. Is what you're waiting for worth it? Will it be momentary or everlasting? Will we hope for something to be accomplished just in our lifetime, in this narrow scope of time? Will we expect something to be given to us at the end of our life because we think that we deserve it? Or will our hope, our deep longing, be in God's promised Messiah who brings everlasting joy and fulfillment? It's all in the family. We see in the family of Jesus indicators of who Jesus is, the promises he would fulfill, and the everlasting kingdom he would establish. It's right there. It's all in the family. But the second question remains, who's in this genealogy? And you might laugh with me because there's a lot of people, as we just read. And now we're going to go one by one through every one of their names. But as we've seen, it's anyone but a perfect people. These family members should surprise us. Like, there's a group of people that should jump out of the pages. It's the group of women. God has included these women where back then they would have not been included, and it would have been really strange to see them in a genealogy. This is where I kind of nerd out a little bit, but there is a flow to the genealogy. It goes, Abraham, father of Isaac, father, Isaac, father of, you know, it just keeps going. But when it comes to the women, it says, Zerah, by Tamar. This is a massive indication in the grammar, and follow me, I'm geeking. It's, it's God's intention that attention is drawn to these women, which is, again, surprising because of who they are, right? Like, we know these women. Tamar, verse 3, she's the daughter-in-law of Judah who dressed up as a prostitute and stood at the side of the road and then slept with her father-in-law. Rahab, verse 5, she's introduced in Joshua 2 as a prostitute. 
Ruth, verse 5, she's a Moabite. She's a Gentile, someone outside the people of Israel, someone who lifts the cover off Boaz's feet in the middle of the night, whatever that means. And just to make a point, she slept over at the man's house, knowing full well that it wasn't the right thing to do. Well, how do you know that? It says in the morning she arose before anyone could recognize her, like she was trying to get out of there. She knew if anyone seen her leaving the house of Boaz, she knew what people would be thinking. And finally, the wife of Uriah, verse 6, that's, that's Bathsheba. You know, the woman that David saw bathing on the roof, had her husband killed, and then brought her and took her as a wife? <clears throat> Mary will be mentioned a couple weeks from now, but she's mentioned as one of those women who's pregnant before she was married. What's interesting about all of these women is there's some sort of sexual scandal associated with them. And the men are no better. But it's all in the family. What's amazing about the Bible, about God's word, is that it just tells it as it is. It tells us the truth of what really happened. It's not trying to minimize anything. God's not ashamed to show a sinful people are part of his family. But sometimes we can feel ashamed of ourselves, unlovable, doubting that God could use us in his redemptive story or just include, it, include us at all in his family. Like some of us probably this morning feel like we are not enough, like we've just totally blown it before God, and I can totally relate. When God started chasing me down, when I was a rebellious, lust-loving, prideful, think-I'm-better-than-everybody-else fool, someone brought me to Young Life. And it was there where I heard the word of God and instantly knew it was true. Like the Holy Spirit came into me and I was like, man, that is the words of a holy God. I've never heard anything like that before and I want to know more. I believe that he exists. I believe that there is a God and I know that he needed to be obeyed. But in the Bible study back then in high school, reading, they start reading Hebrews 13.4. Let, uh, let marriage be held in honor amongst all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral, immoral and adulterers. You know, they just kind of dropped this one on us in Bible study. And that verse will mess you up if you don't understand grace. And it messed me up. At the time, I had already had sex before marriage, and so I concluded that I was standing under judgment. I concluded that I was unworthy of experiencing the love of God. Unworthy of experiencing the presence of God. The adoption into his family. Like, I felt like I had blown it. And you guys, we know that sexual sin is a big deal. Like it messes with your mind. It changes the way that you think about things, the way that you look at certain people. And then all these memories float back when you've experienced some sort of sexual immorality. Memories and little whispers as if they're Satan's little reminder saying, remember, that's who you are. Again, if you hear those things in your head from the accuser, it makes you just want to give up. And for me, I stopped going to that Bible study. I stopped hanging with my new Christian friends because I was ashamed. I identified with the prostitute, the sexually immoral, and I was confused how a holy God 
could ever dwell with a sinner like me. Check out the picture on the screen behind me. Rembrandt is a famous Dutch painter during the 1600s who I think deeply understood grace. This painting is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in it, hopefully you can see this. There's a man on his knees without a shoe, with torn and tethered clothes, being depicted in this painting as totally broken. This picture is Rembrandt's reflection on the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where the son rebels from his father. He runs away. He takes his inheritance and then blows it, right? In my sanctified imagination, he's like spent it all on like sex, drugs, anything material, goods, like the newest things that are coming out. And he finds himself with nothing. He finds himself pretty quickly in famine. And then something strange happens in his heart. He repents. He recognizes that he had sinned against heaven and his father. This picture depicts the grace that I understood and received when I believed in Jesus Christ. What he had done on our behalf. This picture is of a gracious father bending down to his son. Laying on him the hands of forgiveness. Embracing him as a child. God was not done chasing me down when I left that Bible study and abandoned my new Christian friends. And I'm convinced he's not done chasing some of you guys down this morning. God was teaching me that his love for me was not dependent on what I did or did not do. But it was dependent on what he had done on my behalf. Though I was a sinner, deserving of judgment, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, and God help us to believe and understand this deeper is that 2,000 years ago, God sent his one and only son. You did it, God. He came into the world to take the judgment that I and all of us deserved, taking our place on the cross of Calvary. The judgment was coming, and there was no escaping it, because our God who is just would have his justice. But our God who is loving would take the judgment on himself so that we could be free. One of the most astounding things about Jesus Christ is not only that he took our judgment that we deserved, but that he rose on the third day and then clothes us with righteousness. What do I mean by that? Well, when we believe in Jesus, this is what happens. We believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, and God no longer sees us as as a rebellious, sinful people. Like, he doesn't look at me anymore and say, I'm a lust-loving, prideful, thought I was better than everybody else, fool. He looks at us, and he sees us as blameless. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he writes this amazing verse. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be counted children of God. God bent down towards us, laid his hands on us in forgiveness, and embraced us as children. And so the question is, what did these women do to deserve being included in the family of God? Well, look at Tamar and Ruth as two examples. Right? Tamar, a prostitute. All that happens is two guys come in, spies of God, and she says, I believe that God has brought judgment on this city, and I want a way out. 
And so she believes God again and hangs the scarlet cord over the window so that when God's judgment came, it would pass over her and she would be free. Just like the blood of the lamb covers us, and so when his judgment comes, we're covered by his blood. Look at Ruth. All she did was believe that God would provide a redeemer for her. She goes to Boaz and comes under the wing of the Redeemer that God provided for her. Just the same way that we as believers can go to Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer. God sees us as family when we believe in his name. To all who would receive him. To all who would believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. It's all in the family. Our final question is, what does this genealogy mean for me? Well, two things. First, it's beautiful. what's beautiful about the genealogy is that even six verses in, Jesus is presented as the one who would ignore human labels of legitimate and illegitimacy to offer his gospel of salvation to all, including the most despised and outcast of society. What does this mean for us? It means no matter your past. It means no matter your brokenness or sin. The genealogy is showing that God has been including and using sinners, people in a process, Jews and Gentiles as a part of his family. And in the person of Jesus, we know that God is still calling people to believe in him to be included in the family of God and experience this redemption and restoration of what was broken. Some of us need to know this morning that it's okay to be a people in progress. A people being restored. This genealogy shows us that we can rest in Jesus as Redeemer or Christ or Messiah and trust that even during the process of him restoring us by the power of the Holy Spirit until the day of glory, we are still included in his family. The Gospel of Matthew does something wonderful. It begins with a past history of God, him saying that uh, all people, all nations are included in this family, and then it's bookended by this great commission. Most of us know it. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. It's a command he gives his children and to all the disciples. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded you. And lo, behold, remember, I am with you till the end of the age. This means that God does not only want us to be a part of his family, but he desires for us to invite others into it. Some of you know that last week, Jason and I went with our, with our uh, global pastor to Indonesia. And we visited four missionaries uh, who were there, sent out by Park. Uh, Amy, Michelle, Ben, and Noel, and their three little kids. And here's something that happened that I've just been wanting to share with everybody. It's both a great encouragement and a massive challenge. At Park Community Church, we believe in making disciples of all nations and are, by God's grace, doing just that here in Chicago and all throughout the world. We got to Indonesia and found out that this specific city that, we're, that we were in, because the missionaries were stationed there, was chosen because there were 10 unreached, 
unengaged people groups within a two-hour boat ride or car ride. That's not just a low percentage of Christians. That means that no one ever has gone and presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a fellow member of Park Community Church, I have never been prouder to be a part of this church, a part of all that God is doing in and through us. And I know this is tangential, but when we just took offering this morning and we gave, we are supporting missionaries who are all around the world in locations where people have never had access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to know, too, is that you are participants of what's happening there. On the third day that we were there, we went out to this unreached people group by boat and sat with the second the second known male believer in this people group in the history of the world ever. And as we sat there with Jabir, we went through the story of Jesus who offers living water to the woman at the well. And Jabir blurted this out. I didn't understand it, but Michelle looked at me with a big smile on her face and said, Lee, Jabir just said, Jesus has everlasting life, and I need to tell my whole village just like the woman did in the story. The encouragement is our church is a part of this. We are participants in this story. We are living out the Great Commission both abroad and here as missionaries. And as a church, we're making sure that all nations... No matter the social class, the economic status, the, uh, the people would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be invited into the family of God. But the challenge is this. We have villages of our own. We might not have a whole people group who hasn't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before, but we certainly have neighbors who haven't. Living in Chicago, we, we certainly have neighbors who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Co-workers who might be feeling they need to earn their way into salvation. Family who needs to hear about the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We have friends. We meet people all the time. We have a village of people who are longing, even if they don't know it yet, for the God of heaven and earth to invite them into their family and call them his child. I want to challenge us to be thinking about one person's name. Maybe even write it down. Is there one person that you know who has not heard or accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ? You have a village. Even if they don't know it yet. They're longing for the creator and the God of heaven and earth to invite them into their family, and you can do just that. In conclusion, this morning, if you've heard nothing else, hear this. It is all in the family. The royal lineage, the messianic promise, the blessing to all nations was being worked out in the genealogy of Jesus, found, uh, which found fulfillment in his arrival. It's all in the family, the sinners, the broken, the scandalous, the Jew, the Gentile, all redeemed by the blood of Jesus spilt for you. It's all in the family. The deepest longing of our hearts would be fulfilled in the family of God, and we have all been invited. It's all in the family. 
As we continue looking forward to Christmas in this Advent season, looking forward to the arrival of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, remind yourself in the season that you are of royal blood. You are a part of God's family. You are redeemed. You are, you are being restored. You are a priesthood. You are a people. You are the church. You are the church who God is using in his mission to invite all people to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life so they could be called children of God. And if this morning you haven't put your faith in Jesus, repented of your sin and, and your rebellion towards him and his ways, then we're not yet children of God. But the good news that God offers this morning is that there is a place in his family. There is a room in heaven with your name on it. And the angels, as well as us, are waiting to rejoice when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and become part of the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we bless your name. We thank you so much for all that you have done, the family that you have included us in. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts as we know the grace that we have received from you to share it. To share it, God. To enjoy being a part of the family, to enjoy in sweet communion, talking to our Heavenly Father, but sharing the good news. Oh God, we believe that Jesus is the Lord. We believe, we believe, we believe and help us in our unbelief. Father, we need you. We need your help to draw people to Jesus. We can't do it on our own, so God, would you go before us? God, would you invite others into the family of God and would you use us, your servants, your children, we pray in Jesus' name.